0: Hey everyone, before we get into it today, just want to give a quick shout out to this season's sponsor, Rook. Close to a billion dollars worth of MEV has been taken out of users' pockets, and that's just on Ethereum, and that number is only getting larger, unfortunately. Rook thinks that it's time for a change, and they've built a solution, which is going to automatically redirect that MEV back to where it belongs into your, the user's pocket. So you're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. I'm a huge fan of this team and what they're building. So stay tuned to find out. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, I'm joined by Hasu and the final, the finale of season four on MEV. This is going to be a fun one, but a little bittersweet. This has been a really fun season for me.
1: Yeah, the grand finale. I mean, I had uh, so much fun thank you for doing this with me thank thank you for pulling me out of my podcast <laughs> retirement um yeah it's been a lot of fun to just talk about mev every week uh yeah i agree um it's been a blast and i think this episode
0: will serve kind of as a nice bookend and we can revisit some of the topics that we addressed in earlier episodes and Maybe the the most fitting one to start with is just latency. I would love to get your sort of closing thoughts on this. We talked about this within a couple of different contexts, both in terms of sort of geographic, like a a sort of a risk vector for uh, platforms like Ethereum. We also talked about it within the context of rollups and Solana. So wherever you want to start first, uh, just on the general concept of latency.
1: Yeah, uh, I went into this season um, with latency as a big topic on my mind. And I, kind of it was on my agenda to bring it up to a bunch of different people and just hear their opinions right Mm. yeah how they think about the topic and how they are dealing with it and um so just to summarize I guess for our for our listeners so um systems that um have very low latency um in, in 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 like some cases they can provide um you know a better experience for users for example users get faster confirmations but also Market makers can update their bids faster so that they can kind of reflect the real cost of liquidity in the outside world. But latency, low latency has this like really pernicious like downside, which is that it, um, it basically leads to a lot of geographical centralization. Because in a in latency system, you're always incentivized to co-locate um, or up to the point of like direct vertical integration with whoever has the ordering monopoly on their chain. And so it leads to kind of different validators uh, co-locating with each other, but also searchers and big block builders co-locating with validators. And um, in a system that is supposed to be decentralized and um, uh, kind of robust to any particular regime of regulation, um, that's that's sort of uh, almost the death blow. I would say so I, I, I'm, we talked to with this, uh, about this with a few different, uh, folks throughout the episode, but I think my, uh, my view kind of, uh, has not changed, uh, from, from kind of this new information that I think you cannot build a system that is both kind of globally decentralized and a very low latency.
0: So I. I sort of think about maybe we could divide this this discussion into sort of two. The way I think about the the latency pressure is in sort of two buckets. One mental framework that I think you gave me at the start of this season was you can think of uh, you know the pressure to basically elongate time around blocks. Right, the more time you have to view um, uh, different opportunities, the more transactions you can see, and the more profit that you can generate. So you're starting to see that play out in a super interesting way, or especially around kind of optimistic relays, uh, which is a pretty cool example of that. And then the other type of latency is more driven by user preferences for fast confirmations. So maybe we could start with the first the first part of that, because uh, then we'll get to sort of the the roll-up angle in that second part. But we sort of talked about optimistic relays. He didn't use that word with Justin Drake in the episode with him and Tarun, and then we kind of continued a little bit with your discussion with Matt Cutler about like infrastructure and how we should incentivize that. So what do you kind of think about that pressure for latency? Like how harmful is that? Is it totally fine? And then maybe if you could like re sort of dredge up the, the debate that you had with Matt and any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, something that we see in the math boost market is that um, latency is becoming a kind of very important factor in, in who wins blocks and, uh, and who doesn't. And, uh, so we see that, uh, both with the builders. So f- for example, it turns out that, um, almost all of the winning bids are basically coming in right before, you know, the, the, end of the bidding period. Why? Because that's the point when, uh, builders have kind of the most amount of information, uh, about the state of the world, uh, they have also the most amount of transactions accumulated and they have, have also the least amount of risk, um, kind of in terms of the price changing against them. And, um, and so it, it matters a lot that you're very well connected to, um, the network and very well connected to, um, to the relays. Um, just a quick kind of shout out to our, also our episode on searchers. So I think what mm-hmm. they showed us is like latency is important in terms of like getting your blocks and your trades to the network, but it's also equally important on the other end, uh, which is initially like ingesting information from the world into your, search algorithm and um and yeah I, th- I think they were alluding to the fact that even more edges basically in having like really fast um and comprehensive kind of data ingestion really good pricing models and like basically having like a perfect view of the world around you and that's that that, that that's even more important so um one innovation that you mentioned mike um is the optimistic relay so it, it turns out that uh, one of the uh, roles of relays is basically be this counterparty bit, or this like this like intermediator intermediate between um the uh validator and the builder and kind of the the goal here is that uh, the block builder can just send um you know an invalid block or a block that lies about the amount of its payment to the validator and kind of steals money from the validator that way um and so originally the idea was that uh that the, the relay uh, just executes the block and just checks if these things are true, if it's valid and if it, if it pays the correct amount, but, um, there are also other ways that you can do this that don't require you to, to actually execute the block, which takes around like between 100 and 200 milliseconds. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, so we call that optimistic relaying where the, uh, the block builder actually makes a deposit, uh, so they deposit some ether with the, with the relay and then, um, they can basically pass through the relay without uh, being executed um and if it turns out that they lied uh, about their block the block was invalid for example then the relay can just take their security deposit and give it to um validator who lost money so i would say this is overall kind of a welcome uh proposal i think always like when latency becomes more important then the just like the decentralized market kind of needs to catch up and then we need to make sure that kind of the decentralized uh thing that's available has to be like not that much worse than kind of your what what a relay and a builder could do if they're vertically integrated for example with each other and so i i don't i don't think there's really like a way around optimistic relaying but um it does have some um implications basically on barriers to entry to uh to the relay market but especially to the builder market because Relays now are in charge of taking deposits and like custodying these deposits and builders also may need to put up deposits with multiple relays. Um, plus there's kind of the thing where, um, if, if like the value of the block gets too high, then basically, um, it's, it can still be profitable to steal, um, for, uh, for the block that right? we've seen blocks that are 10, 20, 50, even hundred Eve, these are, these happen sometimes. And, uh, if you want to make. A deposit that kind of exceeds that then it becomes very capital inefficient uh, if you don't then basically the in many cases kind of the like size of the bond is not enough to actually secure um, that and so you may need a kind of a dual approach right so you basically get passed through for smaller blocks that uh, are below the deposit limit and you have to uh, simulate um for blocks that are kind of above the deposit limit.
0: So you know what you're describing, I'm sort of um, reminded of the concept of MEV burn there. With just in terms of incentives, uh, we again talked about that on the the Justin Drake episode. But I'd be curious what you sort of thought about that. Maybe if you could rehash some of the benefits. The thing that reminded me that you just mentioned was basically, you know, that 32 ETH is not super effective collateral if the value that you could extract from a block is. Much higher than that, right? Um, yes. And just, yeah. So I, I would love to get your your thoughts on MEV burn because that's sort of, it was talked about. I feel like it's gained steam even since mm-hmm. we started doing this season. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts there.
1: Yeah. So um, we brought this up uh, in the context of this equivocation attack on MEF Boost that happened, um, mm-hmm. I think, one or two months ago, where a validator basically equivocated and stole. Um, they basically like stole mev from a from a block builder right? and um so uh why is this important so yeah MEF boost basically had this like um assumption um that um the the vendor cannot just make like a block of their own and kind of race with the the block that the relay publishes but yeah it turned out it was like not correctly uh, uh implemented and so um yeah, it's basically, uh, it was true at the time that um, the, like the proposal is basically only, can only be like slashed for a relatively small amount. And so if they can like steal more money, then they definitely have an incentive to do that um, because they may like steal more money than they get slashed for. And Ethereum's uh, staking system is very, uh, yeah, forgiving basically of equivocation. Uh, of um so how much you get slash for is is a function of how many proposers um equivocate uh, i believe at the same time um and so i think this is like so and this is like in order to kind of protect solo stakers from like the hardware having a fault etc and uh um yeah, so basically if you just like if you're the only person equivocating, then you get slashed for almost nothing. I think the I think the um the party that ended up stealing like 20 million dollars from from different sandwich bots, they got slashed for one Eve. So um and it, it turns out that there is like a fix that is um you know very, very robust to kind of anything that a proposer can do. So basically like it completely secures kind of the like a um, MEF boost implementation and that requires kind of moving from like a one a one step to a two-step fork choice rule. So you would first have a phase where let's say the proposer committee uh kind of uh kind of uh, signs signs basically a, a block header and then like the proposer assigns it um or something. Uh I forgot like the exact thing, but the idea is that basically the the um the proposer um the proposal commitment becomes more credible. So it's not even possible for them kind of to, to equivocate, um, in that sense. And so, um, and ironically, this is like the same thing that you need for, um, for MEV burning because for MEV burn, you basically need, um, an MEV oracle. So you need to know how much MEV is actually in the block. Because if, if for example, the block builder or the proposer just was able to say, oh, yeah, this is how much MEV is in the block, then they would both be incentivized to just lie and understate the amount so they can kind of keep the rest for themselves. And so you need what we call like a disinterested party, like a party who's not the active proposer or the active block builder. And that's what you would, that's when you would usually rely on kind of this proposer uh, committee. And um, so uh yeah, I think kind of the, the, the solution that, uh, of, of burning MEV actually has a lot of parallels to like how we would harden, uh, kind of PBS. And, um, nonetheless, I think it's, uh, uh, like I used to be kind of a, like a little bit of a critic maybe of, of MEV burning, but I think if it's like implemented well, then I think it's, uh, it's a really good idea because it just, um, it kind of removes this, uh this instability in the block reward that can lead to, um, kind of incentives for, uh, equivocation or for kind of, uh, reorganization attacks, uh, stealing MEV from another validator. Um, so optimally, like in a perfect world, we would just have kind of our rewards, um, for validators be very consistent. And I think this is pretty much, uh, what meth, uh, burn affords us and, um, also, um, in terms of the economics of Ethereum, we don't want to overpay for security, right? So if we think that um, there is a minimum amount of security that we need to pay for the system to, to be secure, then uh, any money that we overpay uh, over that amount is basically, uh, yeah, it has an opportunity cost, right? It's it's like money that's lost um, from the system. And so, um, yeah, I'm with Justin there. I think uh, burn is, is great. We just gotta be kind of careful about How we implement it so it doesn't create any new like uh, trust assumptions in the system
0: yeah i like that that was a great explanation and i think it's a, a good reminder that you know oftentimes you see anything related to the burn and ethereum is kind of that ultrasound money sort of graphic of the supply going down but really there's so much more that goes into these decisions and often it's about eliminating threat vectors for the security of ethereum the network so it's just a good reminder that that's really why a lot of these decisions end up getting made, and less about sort of the deflationary meme that you might see on on Twitter. Um, I'd love to sort of just return to that latency here and just talk about the second bucket. And maybe this will sort of bring us into the MEV and the modular stack episode that we had with John and Robert, which I thought was one of my favorite episodes of the season. It was just a great, great discussion. But one of the you know especially within the context of something like a centralized sequencer which is how all these roll-ups are running today the incentive there first of all just decentralizing the sequencer set is a tricky problem which we can get into as well and i would love to get your thoughts but also because users want fast commitments right that's a user preference and that does incentivize sort of a a lower latency sort of environment so you know you kind of started this episode by saying hey there's there's a lot of risks associated with low latency blockchains but it seems like based on user preference that that's the way we're trending with rollups so i'd love to get your thoughts there and how you see that playing out
1: yeah so i um the the main risk i see is that um all of the rollups have have like one or two second block times and um so we kind of it's, it's very clear that like, as a user, you want like faster and faster block times. And, um, but if we go down this route, then the fastest block time is basically like using a centralized database is like interacting with the server who can just, uh, you know, wreck erect instantly. Uh, and it, there's no need to like run a consensus on, on anything. And, um, yeah, if, if we like only follow the user preference, then we basically just, we just end up back in kind of this like very centralized web two world and the yeah the, the problem here is that um rollups have kind of gotten the users used to just like very good user experience but now that it turns out that oh we actually need to decentralize our sequences um it's not that easy to do once you have uh you know once you have kind of locked into this low block time um because uh it's it's relatively tricky to run uh, I've kind of proposed a builder separation, um, with one second block times, because this is very, like a very short amount of time in order to kind of build a block and run, uh, like a, a block builder auction. Um, especially if you want it to happen in a kind of like geographically, like diverse, uh, regime. And right? so Bitcoin blocks were originally like set 10 minutes apart from each other. So there's enough time to propagate large blocks between like China and, and Russia and the US and so on. And um, now we are down to like one second block times and it's it's getting, just becoming more and more important um, for these parties to be like very closely connected with each other. And um, I think it's very likely, um, especially as MEV plays a big role um, for the returns of searchers and builders and, and the, the validators. Then uh Yeah, you basically end up, in that word that we don't want, which is kind of geographical centralization.
0: I mean, this has been, you know, discussed since, at least since I've been in crypto, which is basically there are different trade-offs, right? And eventually you're going to have to find some line that we're all comfortable operating in. And uh, I'm not sure what solution there is other than to just see, see how it all plays out, but it's definitely a concern worth highlighting. I'd love to get your thoughts. Again, we talked about this a little in this episode on we sort of highlighted the difference in between decentralizing sequencers but each of those sequencers sort of rolls up within the same blockchain or rollup uh and then but then there's also this idea of shared sequencer sets right where you sort of have this set of sequencers that sequences transactions for multiple different rollups and i guess there's some interest there because in theory this could lead to more cross domain sort of cross chain mev which has been a meme for a while. It exists today largely in sex-to-dex arbitrage, but in this instance, you could imagine, you know, like a Uniswap uh, deployment on Arbitrum and a Curve deployment on, you know, uh, Optimism being arbed away. And it just widens up the design space and is good for interoperability, but there's a lot of problems with that as well. So maybe if you could just comment a little bit on the talk about (laughs) shared sequencers and how you think about the challenge there and just where you see that whole space going.
1: Yeah. So I, uh, my, my view on this generally is that the name shared sequencer is a little bit, maybe of a misnomer because it implies that, um, the, the, the sequencer actually has kind of an opinion, um, about the ordering, that it orders mm. transactions in a in kind of optimal way, which is not the case. So when we talk about these shared sequencers, then it, it basically means that, that two rollups or more. Outsource the proposing of of the next block to the data availability layer to the same party, and that party can be kind of the validator of another blockchain. Um, and so, this actually includes kind of both base rollups, but also other forms of rollups. So, Ethereum, for example, could be the shared sequencer for other rollups, and then it would kind of be the next uh, Ethereum proposer who also proposes the blocks for 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 rollups. But it could also be uh, a party like um, Espresso uh, or Astria or um, or Radius or Swaf, for example, right? So if you, if, you, if you kind of zoom out far enough. Um, and um, so, uh, but what they all say is basically that um, they don't uh, execute the block. They just, uh, you know, take the transactions and include them. And if you do that, then of course, uh, there's like no such notion of, for example, like cross domain atomicity, which, which they advertise. So, um, James Prestwich had, uh, I thought a really good article on this. I, I think it, it was something in the title around like shared sequencers or sequencers. And, and but the main idea was that, um, a shared sequencer basically can't guarantee, uh, you know, atomic execution. They can at most guarantee you, um, atomic inclusion and um and the the reason for that is that uh you basically need to execute the the transactions um in order to see kind of how they interact with each other because transactions are in many ways conflicting with each other contingent on each other and so if if another transaction is sequenced before you then you know your transaction um that might be like buying something on Uniswap and selling it on arbitrum is no longer guaranteed even to succeed because you can never know what the state um, you can never know what the what the state of the the blockchain is going to be uh, at the point when you actually put the transaction in the block, unless you put it at the very top of the block, because there's always like transactions coming before you that actually change the state, and then the transaction that you thought will succeed will actually fail, uh, or not su- not succeed in kind of the way that that you think it would. Um, so it's a little bit of an arcane point, but it's very important, and I would encourage um, people to check out the article. Um, so I think the way that it's most likely going to play out is that these shared sequences will all adopt some form of proposal builder separation, because although they all say like, we don't execute the block, the service is completely useless if nobody executes the block. And so if they don't want to execute the block themselves, then they need to separate this out into a builder market. And then you just have big block builders to execute everything and kind of come up with an optimal ordering. And then they, the, the builders can basically give like soft they can give you almost like soft guarantees about um, kind of atomic execution, but you should kind of be aware that this is like is, is a trusted guarantee. So they can put your transaction. So it, 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 why do I say this is like a trusted guarantee? Because the block builder can basically like you can't guarantee like you you cannot like cryptographically enforce that the block builder cannot put the transaction somewhere where uh, the atomicity doesn't break. That's because they can order the transactions in any way they want. And you have no way of restraining that. And uh, you, you could, for example, mandate that like block builders take a bond, for example. Um, and and then maybe the block builder can get slashed on Suave uh, if they kind of don't respect your atomicity, but then all of a sudden, like you get into the territory where things become very, very capital inefficient. Um, and so it's all about trade-offs basically. And so, I would say, um, when it comes to shared sequences, I think it's, it's like a nice service, but it's been, it's been overhyped, uh, because it doesn't really give you kind of the guarantees that I think people think that these shared sequences give.
0: I agree with that. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this and shout out to, to Jill Gunter, who's, uh, at Espresso and she mentioned even the abbreviation SS. You know, that's probably not that is sort of reminiscent of the uh, sort of secret police arm of the Nazi party, which probably so for many, maybe multiple reasons, I agree with the SP share, uh, shared proposers would be quite better or better. Yeah, but I agree. I think once you start to dig into the technical complexity of it, it's difficult. And and also there's the I mean, one another thing that often gets cited here as well is sort of the economic incentive of the roll ups themselves. So it's very technically difficult thing to implement. Yes. Um, but also, in, in a way, you could measure the MEV being gener- generated by the centralized sequencer today as revenue for the roll-ups. And so there's this economic question on top of everything else that we just discussed, which is why would the protocols want to do this? So I think that's yeah. another question that these... And I think the general consensus is there will be some sort of revenue share, but but you know, I think that's still an open question for me as well. Totally. You're totally
1: right. I think the argument that for example, as Espresso would make is that by opting into a shared sequencer, you can make more revenue for your chain than if you just like made your blocks in a kind of more siloed way. Um, but it's very hard. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's basically very hard to say uh, what like a fair profit share should be between these two chains. And uh sequencing is is pretty much um the only way that like blockchains make money right and so Mm -hmm. it's uh it's like quite tricky to outsource that and say oh yeah i'm getting like exactly what i think i should be getting because it's very hard to calculate uh how much each individual chain like contributed to maybe the final ordering um or the the final revenue of, of a block so it's a very tricky problem um i think you can like like Solve it in a little bit of a like, hand-wavy way uh, just to maybe like governance agreements that you like adapt every now and then. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we yeah, would will be interesting to see kind of how these economics play out then in the real world. Yeah.
0: I'm in total agreement with you there. Maybe we can sort of segue this into the, the Cosmos episode that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to get to privacy as sort of a, a primitive for designing blockchains, which I thought Harry did a... A great job, or uh, Henry did a great job of describing. Um, but one of the analogies I'd love to get your sort of thoughts on because I, I missed you during this episode. But you know, he sort of compared the the sort of internet of blockchains in Cosmos, right? It's so a bunch of different sort of full stack uh, blockchains that interact with each other. But the that environment of Cosmos and the rollups, like so the sort of layer twos on Ethereum, I think there are a lot of parallels to. Um, in that, first of all, you don't really have you know atomic composability like you have on main chains like uh, ETH main chain or Solana, and you're also start of, you sort of start to worry about um, you know standardization across different chains and how do these chains talk to each other and maybe this idea of cross domain MEV, which we were just describing before. How did you how do you think of that analogy between? Cosmos and sort of the roll up environment on Ethereum.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I think um there is a, obviously I think a lot of overlap between Cosmos and the roll up environment on Ethereum. Um I think that the line will blur more and more. I think there will be many roll ups in the future and uh you can almost like mix and match between different uh, components that you can plug into the you know different layers of the blockchain right different uh, settlement layers different data availability layers different maybe sequencers, sequencing layers and different you know execution layers different virtual machine machines and like who else what will end up like stripping out like uh shared mempool like suave I think is or shared like block space auction I think is, is one of the things that um would make a lot of sense uh, for many reasons um, and uh, when you kind of have the ability to unbundle, uh, a chain like that, then you gain, uh, much more control over MEV than can be afforded by, you know, a chain like Ethereum. And, um, that's for the simple reason that Ethereum is like a very big, has a very big state. It has like a lot of applications, a lot of users that already are built on top of it and changing anything in a way that doesn't break the system or makes it kind of breaks the social contract at least like towards at least some of your users is very difficult. Um, Ethereum is also a system that's, you know, designed to be maximally, credibly neutral. And so mm-hmm. we don't want to change it too much. Um, and that mandates that, uh, a lot of improvements to the system have to happen in a way that are kind of more backward compatible or also more, uh, may- maybe don't even require changing like the core protocol, but can be built on kind of peripheral layers. So. Math boost is a good example, right? We could have done, uh, could have done enshrined PBS from the start, but then we would have to touch the protocol every time we need to update it. And um, since it's a completely new protocol that's operating in a very adversarial environment where there's too many parties incentivized to break it, um, we have felt the need to update it many times. And uh, so I think the decision to keep it outside the protocol until we, think we have found uh an iteration that that's very robust and doesn't need to change also with the like changes in the market uh anymore um i think that decision is like was totally justified in in cosmos or on kind of the more centralized rollup chains uh, you don't have these constraints and so you can move much faster you can you can kind of change much more things about how your blockchain works and um you don't even have this constraint of um that kind of your like you need to um kind of assume that like your validators are um you know very like adversarial or something like in 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 ethereum basically have to assume well, everybody can be a validator and if you for example you can steal money from like a searcher bot then we have no way of preventing that right? whereas in in cosmos they can say oh yeah validators like you're not allowed to uh sandwich a user why not otherwise we just like Uh, make a governance proposal and have people vote with their coins and then you know we'll slash your coins um and so this is like very far outside what's possible in ethereum and i think yeah, these different constraints basically make very different approaches to to mev possible and um you know given these constraints i think both uh both both like ethereum and cosmos are kind of doing what's right uh you know given their unique situations i
0: couldn't agree more. I I really enjoyed both our Solana and Cosmos episodes. The it sort of informs my general, uh, you know, perspective that I I I enjoy, I like that there are different sort of L one ecosystems because I think it does encourage some amount of just diversity of of thought. Uh, maybe a slightly unpopular opinion would be, I actually don't think in all instances same think is a bad. A bad trait. For instance, in a startup, you sort of need to have same thing, right? You need everyone. You need everyone rowing to the beat of the exact same drum. That will literally be life or death. But I think once you get large enough, or once the problem and design space becomes big enough, you want to start encouraging diversity of thought and opinions. So. You know, in general, people in Cosmos sort of think with a relatively similar attitude, obviously not entirely. I'm painting with a broad brush here. Same thing with Solana and same thing with Ethereum. So I thought it was super cool to, like Cosmos is just a great example of something that's so opposite to Ethereum because they don't have this, you know, unique problem and opportunity of securing billions and billions of dollars in TVL. They often have more app-specific chains, uh, that's, you know, the app chain thesis of Cosmos. So they can do these decisions and the biggest decision always for me like the the difference that they make is instead of like trying to make validators sort of commoditized and and dumb they want their validators to do more because they understand that consensus layer but also the semantics of the application and i just think there's so much
1: cool experimentation that comes from that so it's just yeah interesting and i think um ethereum solana cosmos i think these are the most like the three most kind of interesting uh blockchains or like blockchain universes i think because they make very like distinct trade-offs from each other like they in in kind of a competitive market we would say they are meaningfully differentiated from each other and i think if you if you want crypto to win if you if you're not tribal if you just want you know decentralized applications to to you know become meaningful in the world then you should be very happy that there are different parties to explore different trade-offs and have very kind of serious communities behind them and like attracting builders and so on, on their own, like in their own right. And so, yeah, I, I definitely applaud like Ethereum, Solana and cosmos or all three of them, um, for just like doing what they think is right. And like exploring the design trade-off and yeah, like a lot of things, uh, sometimes they don't work and you have to like walk it back. For example, Solana, um, going without a fee market, for example, like, uh, some, some stuff may be like more obvious than others, but nonetheless, I, I think like what they do reveals a lot of interesting stuff, um, about building blockchain systems that, uh, yeah, everybody can, can learn from
0: quick break from the show here. I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine swapping two stable coins on chain, paying $0 in gas, and instead getting a rebate of $2,000. This is something that's actually happened on chain. To understand how, I want to introduce and thank this season's sponsor, Rook. Zooming out for a second, the current state of affairs in MEV is billions of dollars so far have been extracted from users' pockets using MEV. Rook is coming in and saying, enough is enough, blockchain should drive value to their users and the applications they use, it is time to leave the hobbyist era behind us if we want to move forward and we want to get this right. That's why Rook has built a custom blockchain settlement network, and it's one that gives you full control over the entire transaction lifecycle. Today you can connect to an open source Rook node. The Rook protocol will automatically match, bundle, and auction your orders and transactions in seconds with zero gas overhead. Also, any MEV that's discoverable along the way will be returned to you, the user. Created as a collaboration between the industry's top mechanism designers and MEV engineers, Rook was built from the ground up to be scalable, safe, and programmable. You can get your own mempool, choose searchers and builders, and link your mempool with others to discover even more MEV. You can define how the MEV is shared and delivered as well. And Rook can basically process anything from transactions to meta transactions and more. This is the way that blockchains basically should have been from day one. So if you're a user listening to this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your wallets, go to your favorite app, your node provider and say, hey, I want you to be working with these guys, Rook. I want the MEV that I create to be redistributed back to me. If you're a developer and you want to stay ahead of the game, the best way to do that is to follow them on Twitter. They are at Rook or even better yet, slide into their DMs. They are lightning responsive. They'll get you set up today. And if you do slide into those DMs, as always, please tell them that I sent you. Now. Maybe we can sort of segue into privacy here. And I would love to get your thoughts on, you know, I thought Henry specifically had a very cool take on privacy and, you know, Henry sort of found his way to MEV in kind of a backwards way. He started actually as a researcher, I believe in sort of the zero knowledge uh, space and was actually basically trying to to find a way to give users more privacy as sort of a necessary primitive, and then that wound up having implications for MEV. So maybe um, if you could kind of give your take on privacy as a necessary primitive for markets functioning, as opposed to kind of this ideology, I would just love to
1: get your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is such an interesting topic because I would say there's three different camps in crypto when it comes to privacy that like, had very different motivations. So mm-hmm. you have the, like, the very ideological people who are motivated by, you know, the idea of, like, human rights, for example. Everybody should have the right to, to privacy, to transact privately, to, like, have private thoughts and so on. And, um, and then you have kind of the, like, very academic camp. Like, everybody, like, all of this research are studying kind of zero knowledge and cryptography um, and trusted execution environments and so on. And um, so they are in it almost for the intellectual challenge of it, like, and the curiosity. And the then the third campus is, is basically, like, ma- like mechanism designers and, like, market structure designers. And um, that includes us, I would say. And then it actually turns out that you kind of, you need privacy in order to build, um, you know, cred- credible mechanisms that, that work. For example, auctions just tend to work, you know, infinitely better when you can have privacy of bids, for example, right? When, when like not every bit is, 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 kind of public and people can react to each other's bits and so on. It makes the auction extremely strategic and, um, and very centralizing as well. And also much easier to break for the auctioneer. Um, and this is one example, but, um, privacy is, is kind of extremely important when you want to build, you know, a good market structure and especially in the MEV supply chain, um, uh, privacy is very important because there's a lot of informational value in the bits. So just seeing the intent of a person, what they want to do, um, basically already gives you like a financial edge because you can front run them and allow you to do harm harm to them basically. Um, and it's also very important for collaboration. So one of the one of the goals that we have for the MEV supply chain is is basically for it to be very flat. Mm. Like we want to because we want validation and like block production to be decentralized. We don't want any actors who kind of are able to monopolize, uh, you know, the I mean, the supply chain and the crew, like an extraordinary amount of power. And so we, we want to, you know, make it just as possible kind of to be a small searcher or a small block builder, um, and not as it is, for example, to, to be a bigger party. And basically what that requires is that, that small parties can, also collaborate with each other as well as bigger parties in order to participate kind of in the same extraction process uh, and block building process and uh, this collaboration um, doesn't work without strong privacy because you always have to be uh, like very aware that others can steal your bundles um and, and and kind of steal money from you and so it turns out that privacy is is just of fundamental importance um for the mev supply chain and yeah we couldn't couldn't kind of achieve our goals uh if we don't solve the the privacy puzzle.
0: Yeah. And MEV share, you know, which went live relatively recently, I think is a super cool example of that as well. Um, as something that wouldn't be possible without the power of privacy.
1: Yeah, it's uh, so MEV share is a new order flow auction that that differs kind of from all existing products in the sense that um uh searchers can can basically run on uh, encrypted uh user orders. So searchers submit um, their backgrounds um, without actually seeing uh, all of the information about the user order. So right now we reveal some amount of information, not enough to front run, but just enough kind of to constrain the the search space um, so that searchers are not completely blind. And then there's actually uh, the block builders are in charge of like running this simulation and matching the orders um, together, which is very cool. And for searchers, it's a completely new paradigm Um, kind of searching, searching on on private data is is not what they are used to, Um, but we think it yields fundamentally better outcomes for users. And if you kind of continue this, this line of thought, then the next step here is kind of searchers searching on searcher orders, not just on user orders. So for example, one searcher could, you know, do like uh, an arbitrage and another searcher could kind of um, you know, do another part of the arbitrage that maybe the, ser- the first searcher was not willing to take because of risk limits or uh, because they had, like, a, a different, like, ability to hedge or, like, searchers um, kind of backrunning each other or, like, matching, like, complementary traits together. And, um, yeah, I think uh, I think we're looking at ways that, that kind of um, order flow can be aggregated um, in a trustless way that, that doesn't, uh, like, require trust from anyone uh, and also kind of removes trust in the auctioneer itself and uh yeah i think that's that's kind of the next big item on our agenda
0: yes yeah i want to get into order flow auctions because that was a great episode that we did with uh quintus and barnaby mm-hmm. yeah but before we do i have one one question for you because this was i actually thought one of my it was a telling moment in in the series i think when you it was the searcher episode and you asked <laughs> Uh, both Dean and Anish, are you using private order flow? And there was probably a five second pause. And Anish, you know, very diplomatically said, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any. And uh, one sort of, you know, trend that it, it is privacy sort of is, is definitely this good market primitive. I'm also, to be honest, to just be transparent, I'm ideologically in the camp of privacy. I sort of find mm-hmm. myself rooting for more privacy. I think it is a good human right that we could all probably get behind. But the sort of flip side of that is, you know, people talk a lot about kind of private order flow, and there's so much incentive for, especially builders, right, to to get this private order flow. And on top of that, it does seem like there's kind of this maybe call it like fragmentation of the mempool, so to speak. And it used to be there was one sort of mempool. It's not exactly it doesn't exactly work like that, but it was one mm-hmm. public mempool. Now you actually have protocol level changes like. Kind of abstraction 4337 where there's this user op sort of mempool. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a whole bunch of different whole bunch of different things out there. So I would love to just get your thoughts on kind of private order flow and is that the destiny and sort of the way that um, MEV mm-hmm. and transactions on Ethereum are moving, or what are your thoughts
1: there? Yeah, that's just that is a great question. I think right now the meta game is definitely that it's all about exclusive order flow. Mm-hmm. So in order to Uh, so all of the the top block builders are also searchers and um, the way that they can uh they can basically like be block builders is from their own exclusive order flow from their search Mm -hmm. operations that they may not necessarily share kind of with other block builders and because they don't submit to other block builders but rather do the block building themselves on many blocks it's actually uh, more profitable for them to to do that because if you share your, uh, if you kind of share your order flow with all of the other block builders, then kind of in a very naive example, you just increase, uh, kind of the bit of all block builders equally, whereas that, that they end up, that they end up paying to the vendor, whereas if you keep it private, then. Uh, your own bid stays the same, but the bid of all other block builders goes down. And so you actually have to bid less. You only have to bid the second bid, right? The, the, the bid of the next best block builder. And so you just end up leaking less money to the validator and, and then end up retaining more for yourself. And, um, so I, I think, um, this is a strong, strong, uh, incentive to, um, attain, um, exclusive order flow, whether it's from users. Uh, for example, by buying order flow from like a wallet or an application, um, in the form of like vertical integration or striking any kind of private agreements, um, or the other alternative is of course, like running your own trading operation, because then you almost have like homemade exclusive order flow that is in many cases, very, very valuable because of, um, you know, the high amounts of fees that it's able to pay, uh, because of the profitability, um. I think in order to kind of break up uh, the current metagame of the searcher builder, um, so if this was allowed to continue, then you're basically going straight for that feature where um, only the biggest trading firms are able to build blocks on Ethereum. And today that's maybe like a winter mute, maybe an SCP. And these are like firms where you are kind of know that they are ideologically aligned with crypto to a good degree. But um, like when it comes to, I don't know, like a citadel or like a tower or virtue, whatever, like once it becomes profitable enough, then you can be sure that like the existing, like TreadFi HFT firms will also crowd into the space and they have more, you know, they have even like better people and they have even like lower latency and proprietary algorithms and bigger balance sheets. And then all of a sudden, you know, then you find yourself with like these new overlords that, um, you didn't ask for, and you don't know how to get rid of them anymore. And so that's why I think it's very important to break up the current meta game and make it so that searchers can be searchers again, um, and don't have to kind of opine on, you know, the composition of the entire block. And, um, and that would basically requires you know, a meta game where order flow can be shared more freely, both because it's kind of unchecked from the bounds of, of, of trust. Um, so you don't have to trust in that anyone would steal or mess with your order flow anymore. Um, but also kind of make it economically feasible, um, for order flow to be shared, right? So removing this incentive that, uh, you have to pay the second bit.
0: So I want to get into order flow auctions. You know, I actually, it's funny. This is one of those seasons where we could have done, I think twice the number of episodes and it wouldn't have felt packed at all. Like there was just so much, there was so much we could have talked about and I do wish we could have gotten into this subject a little bit more. And I actually changed my, I had my thinking changed about order flow auctions um, this season. And I'm sort of thinking about it differently than I was in the beginning. How come? And
1: I would love to change it.
0: So I went into this season thinking, and actually an early iteration of our final episode was going to be focused on wallets and the impact Uh that wallets were going to have. And I've sort of changed my thought process there because, and actually some of this was, I went back and re-listened to the Tao Leibovitz, uh mm-hmm. episode that you mentioned. Uh, it was, I Pledge Allegiance, shout out mm-hmm. to Reverie. They've got a great podcast. And I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, we got into it with Quintus a little bit, but sort of general order flow auctions versus a specific order flow auction run by a DEX or something like that. And at least for me, I like to think about things in terms of like incentives, almost like if you start from this hypothetical, like how will they play out? Mm -hmm. And I probably changed my thinking in that. I think the DEXs are the ones, the applications are the ones that have the user connection and the leverage Mm -hmm. much more so than the wallets, which I think Uniswap will be super interesting to see how that plays out because they sort of have both now. Um, It's definitely one, same with Coinbase, by the way, uh, definitely ones to watch. And And then it will be kind of this interesting, so I think wallets are going to have much less of an influence than I originally thought. And then I think it will be this sort of interesting trade off between generalized order flow auctions, where maybe you have more information and therefore more like profits to be extracted versus a DEX exerting its own influence. Um, And even though you have less uh, you know, transactions and therefore less value that you can extract, they do have more leverage because they're the ones creating that maybe. so uh-huh. i that's kind of how i've changed my thinking about it i'd love to like i know you probably have a perspective
1: about this you know at flashbots but what do you think yeah it's a it's a it's a great question i think um or there are several parties in the supply chain who have a lot of power i think i would not count out the wallets i think there's, there are a lot of users who mm. um basically would not change their wallet um and then I think the application is, I would say it's like in about like a 50, 50 kind of split, um, mm. when it comes to like nudging the user to, to do different things. Um, because a lot of users also trend like, transact like through their wallet, right? So for, I mean, some people go to like the Uniswap front end, um, and, and trade there. And in that case, I would agree like Uniswap can kind of direct the transaction wherever they want. And this is actually a thing that. If they were to adopt 437, then it becomes even easier to do. So it gives the application even more control over how exactly the transaction is executed. Um but um for many users also the wallet is simply kind of their portal to crypto and they rely on whatever the wallet is telling them, like where to trade, for example, or even executing that their trade outright as we see with metamask and so i think both have a lot of power as does coinbase so coinbase for many is even like the starting point um for for many in kind of their onboarding journey to crypto because you you couldn't even use uh, like a metamask um without first like buying some ETH. like you need to deposit euro, you need to buy some ETH, and you need to go out and so i think they actually are all uniquely powerful in their right in their way and um uh, yeah, I think that it just differs um, by different users, I would say. It would be very interesting um, to see how that how that plays out. So
0: right now, it just really depends on how this all ends up playing out, right? So when I think about, okay, what, what impact or sort of leverage can wallets exert across the value chain? Well, a whole bunch of transactions flow. The intent starts at something like a MetaMask, right? And right now, if you have a solution like uh, Flashbots, uh, or like MEV share or something like that, or the solution that, you know, Rook has as the, the sponsor of this podcast, shout out Rook. They, you have to go, who would you go lobby, right? You could go to the RPC endpoint, you could go to the wallet and uh, you're, you're trying to, it's sort of like the marketing, you know, strategy. I would almost liken it to drug companies, sort of marketing directly through like TV to the users, even though ultimately their distribution mechanism is the hospitals. So that exists today. Yeah. in the in the in the future i think it's telling actually if you look at the uniswap wallet uh the mobile wallet that recently came out that you actually don't have the option as a user to switch your rpc endpoint and in the future mm-hmm. as we go past our little world of crypto nerds today how many people are actually going to care about that you know so in in some sense the wallets yeah. will will have that but i also i can't kind of help it also like when i close my eyes and try to interface the examine or imagine the user interface i think for i used to think about there's going to be one wallet that wins and sort of organizes your apps and you start with your wallet and go there mm-hmm. but now i i kind of think that already exists and it's called your phone and you're going to mm-hmm. have your phone is really going to be your your wallet at the end of the day and then you're just going to go click through apps and then like coinbase's wallet as a service you know i think basically the apps that gain product market fit mm-hmm. are going to integrate their own sort of wallets that'll be white labeled and sort of built into the product experience. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that, yeah, to me, it kind of comes down to the user relationship. Um, and I think people feel
1: more of an affinity with their apps than an interface, but I think if you could predict who's going to own the user, (laughs) then uh, you can make a lot of money being right. Uh, I think in practice it's, it's a, it's very like hard to know. B I think there will be some, distribution between them, where if you look in traditional products, then, um, it's not always kind of user facing product that ends up making the most money in, in kind of the supply chain, right. Mm. Um, for example, I mean, there's this famous example of like, uh, Intel and windows making kind of 95% of the, the profit in the PC market, even though neither of them is kind of the, like makes the actual PC or like contributes, um, you know, any of the, or most of the hardware components nor are they the party actually selling the pc etc and um i think it, like how an industry is going to evolve and, and and who ends up having power is is very very hard to know in advance and it also differs very strongly by by the user so if you buy if you buy like an, an etf like do you know like what's the, the the profit split there between like uh i don't know like the like the index provider, like how much money does like MSCI make versus like how much money does Vanguard make, uh, or like interactive brokers and how much does like Robinhood make? I mean, these are like different kind of, uh, uh you know, different parts of the supply chain speaking to different people as well. And yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's like a, a similar situation here.
0: It's a very good point. Just a good good reminder that's very early and it's super difficult to predict any of this stuff. Also, we'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, basically on sort of an app specific order flow auction, maybe hosted by something like a uniswap versus a more general order flow auction where uh you know you have access to a little bit more information, but you know, you might be end up sort of competing with the uniswaps of the world in a way.
1: Yeah, I think um I think it's a good question. I think um Tio Libovitz in his interview with uh uh, i pledge allegiance he he gave mm. some arguments for why um it's better to have an app specific order for auction and i think the two uh arguments that he gave they come down to uh one uh economic alignment so he thinks that uh apps are not interested in sharing any revenue with a third party provider mm. and the second is specialization uh so you can He would argue that you can design an order flow auction that's much more efficient for an individual use case than a generalized order flow auction could be. Hmm. I think in the other direction, uh, you can argue also a few things. Um, So you can argue um, complementarity or network effect of having more orders in the same auction. I think that's a big case for the generalized auctions uh, where, for example, trades that happen on Unisop, um, they might have... um, some kind of network effect with, uh, liquidations on a lending market or trades that happen on other exchanges, um, and so on. I think you can kind of argue that, uh, many user intents can ultimately matched against each other or bundled together in some way. Um, I think, uh, other network effects apply as well. So I think if you have one, uh, one order for auction, then there's only one, uh, one option kind of, uh, for searchers to, to adopt um because kind of the the um the demand side from users is important but equally important is the supply side um i would say of like services provided by searchers and, uh, and block builders um and so um that's that's very key i think and then in the episode with quintus and uh, and barnaby um we also went into uh i think some more uh <clears throat> arguments why it can be more efficient uh to have a single uh, block space auction. And I think this is mm. the way how we are thinking about it with Suave where, um, there's just this one giant, uh, block space auction where like it collects all the preferences from users and then, uh, runs some kind of, uh, you know, combinatorics on it, um, and, uh, and kind of produces, um, the optimal ordering across several different chains. And, um, so we think if it's, if it's one giant auction, um there's actually uh more uh benefits in terms of user surplus um than if you isolated this into into two steps where first user transaction is kind of settled uh or, or auctioned off and then there's still an auction where the searchers have to actually bid uh for block space uh, with a block builder or validator um and finally um i think also decentralization is a is a key part so it's It's much more difficult, I think, to uh, to have these like individual app mempools. So if we imagine at the extreme that every app has its own mempool, then I think um, this puts us much closer to uh, a place of exclusive order flow, where exclusive order flow like dominates the MEV supply chain um, than if you had some kind of holistic solution uh, where searchers and block builders can access user order flow, but only in a way that, that is, um, in line, uh, with the user, what the user specifies their that transactions are allowed to, to do. Um, so yeah, for these reasons, I think that, um, I'm betting personally that a generalized solution will be good enough that kind of these network effects will kick in. Um, and in terms of economics, um, That should then resolve itself as a result, because if more value can be created from a generalized solution, then it would still be more profitable for an application to direct the order flow there than, um, finding a kind of vertically integrated solution themselves.
0: I, I hear you on those arguments, and maybe you know it's it's just funny the the MEV space moves so quickly. I heard you use the word intense there. That's the the latest uh, sort of buzzword of the day, and um, I, I thought it might actually be valuable if you could sort of describe uh, you know what an intent is and kind of how how that represents sort of a a change in the way that people think about order flow today? And why are so many people focused on that particular word at the current moment?
1: Yeah. So, um, intent that word has come up in the context of, um, basically moving to, uh, from, from executable transactions to more generalized, um, intents or kind of descriptions, what a transaction is supposed to do. So an example of an intent would be, um. Or rather, an example of of kind of uh, an actual executable transaction would be, you know, um, call this particular Uniswap pool, um, you know, with a with this particular swap, right? So mm. you define exactly the, the the execution path your transaction is uh, is allowed to take. Um, whereas in the intent, you would only specify something very general, like um, I, I want my transaction to pay at least. Uh, at most, let's say like a thousand USDC and I want at least uh 1.1 ETH. Um, so it's almost like a predicate on, on top of your transaction, what your transaction is kind of allowed to become. And then someone else can take this, um, this sort of intent, uh, which is not an executable transaction. It's just like, almost like a, like a small part of a transaction. Um, and they can turn that into then an executable transaction by substituting the actual execution path. So they can find the best way to execute your trade uh, on Ethereum or on some other domain, right? Um, and, and so this gives basically more control to third parties um, to turn your transaction into something that can actually satisfy uh, your intent. And if you have that, then uh, so Cowswap was the first um, project sure that I pioneered this, it. right? Yeah. Um, you basically introduce, uh, you unbundle, basically, like the construction of the execution path from the user's intent. Mm -hmm. Um, And that allows you to create competition about constructing the best execution path. So you can have multiple solvers or executors or searchers, um, if you will, um, all compete on uh, finding the best uh, path and then turn that transaction, turn that intent into a transaction. And uh, only the best one. Uh, may get executed. So I think um, this kind of division of labor in the MEV supply chain um, enables much greater flexibility for the user transactions and better execution uh, because um, it's basically uh, you outsource uh, the execution path, the finding of it to a competitive market. So that's why I think it's very promising, but intents also carry um, certain risk that I feel like is worth calling out right now because it's very under discussed today. So mm-hmm. the risk that I see is basically disrupting, uh, the MEV supply chain, uh, especially, um, by making like fragmenting order flow a lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think right now there's a, a vision or like a, a group of new parties that are positioning themselves to become bundlers because they think that they can take these user intents and, um, you know, generate MEV from it, um, or basically become new, uh, you know, block builders on the basis of exclusive having exclusive order flow from these user intents. And, um, I think that like, while chasing these UX benefits for users, we still have to keep in mind, um, that we need to build a decentralized MEV supply chain. And that we need to min, and that's only possible if we actually minimize uh, the role of exclusive order flow, and uh, seek to basically empower competition at uh, all layers of the stack. Um, and that involves uh, developing solutions that make it so that user order flow can only be executed in a certain way, but also keeping it private at the same time. Um, and uh yeah, I think um this is an interesting strategic question right now, not just for flashbots, but for for anyone I think in in MEV. Like what is exactly like the MEVX uh account abstraction uh going to look like? And how can these new players be, be integrated uh into the existing supply chain without kind of degrading it? I think it's a, an excellent question, maybe sort of a good place to start wrapping
0: up because exactly a sentiment that you just shared as maybe like a risk or a potential warning of sort of fragmenting, uh, you know, order flow. I had kind of had the same thought about, you know, 4337. Now we will be used to, you know, returning to a simpler time, right? 2019, there's kind of one public mempool. And that was, that was a sort of a simplistic way of viewing things. But now it's certainly more complex than that, right? So you layer in something like 4337, where you have a separate user op mempool that's sort of at an earlier stage of the t- chain where we're dealing with intents. And then you also might have something like a, like a cow swap where you can plug in to be a solver. And suddenly you have all of these different right sort of pools um, that you need to plug into. And the one of my big takeaways from this season is, especially when it comes to builders, The real differentiator is just access to information, be that extending the block time through latency, be that access to exclusive uh, bits of order flow, the more information and the more time you can give yourself, the more successful you're going to be. So my question to you is, is that inevitable? Because those are two trends that we kind of see accelerating, right? Like the latency sort of race and order, you know, user information is kind of fragmenting. Do you view that as inevitable? Are we relying on larger builders here and how much of a threat is sort of bigger builder to Ethereum's decentralization and credible neutrality?
1: Uh, I think latency definitely plays a big role. Um, I think the other role is just uh, economics of exclusive order flow. So mm. if you're a searcher or a block builder, then by having exclusive order flow, you can just carve out a bigger pie, a bigger piece of like the, the, the MEV pie mm. um, right now. Uh, so the the incentives are basically, basically in, in some cases, like stacked against sharing order flow. And I think um, what is necessary is that we find ways to create the economic incentives for order flow to be like for, for searchers and block builders and wallets and so on it, like that they find it more profitable to share the order flow in an open way rather than, uh, sell it or keep it for themselves. And, um, so it's, I think this is one of the things that we're looking into. Um, and, uh, this is one of the challenges that any kind of decentralized block builder also will need to solve. So I think both aligning the economic incentives, but also basically creating network effects uh from aggregating like a lot of order flow in the same place um and these problems are very closely related so i think um yes like size is a problem economic like exclusive order flow is a problem and latency is a problem and uh it will be yeah it would be difficult but not impossible um to i think build a system build an order flow auction, um, build a kind of block space auction that, that can, um, address all of these.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, suave I think plays into that. And one of the, the cool things for me about this season has been, uh, learning a little bit more about it. And I now, you know, sort of describe it internally as kind of the most audacious project in crypto out of all the audacious projects that exist because the scope of it is just so massive and it's just so, I'm just, I'm going to be very interested to see how it plays out in the coming years. But what are like, maybe if you could break down within Swave, what are some of the challenges that you're most sort of concerned about when it comes to Suave? And then what are some of the problems that you think are most, it's most immediately set up to solve?
1: Yeah. So maybe just to give listeners a very quick recap. So yeah, Suave is basically, uh, we want it to be the central and unifying block space auction in crypto. So on the one end, it takes in all of these user preferences and then... It, it, it aggregates and matches them in a way and runs the auction in a way that produces some kind of ordering on the target chains. So it basically distributes the supply of block space and in some way that is uh, welfare maximizing for the users as well as revenue maximizing for the, for the sellers. So it kind of satisfies this dual constraint. And it achieves that um, basically by... By searchers and other parties, kind of being able to upload, um, you know, programs, if you will, that are you can think of them as like allowed user, op- like allowed operations on user order flow. So the system itself is kind of this like encrypted pool of transactions, and then other parties can upload kind of actions that are allowed to run on user order flow. So MEV share, for example, is one example where the user if the user opts into using MEV share. Then what happens is that transactions get shown to searchers in, in a privacy preserving way, and it allows them to recapture their own MEV. So I would say that MEV discovery, for example, is one necessary function of this auction, right? Um, another is maybe that transactions get, can get merged together or that the user can control exactly like the execution, like the execution of their transaction, according to some predicates or who's allowed to see what transaction. And that is all kind of mandated through. The use of these uh, of these programs. So, in terms of uh, what it what it, it most like immediately can solve, I think is just preserving, um, you know, the decentralization of the MEV supply chain in in the light of you know changing uh, kind of user preferences, um, but also changing kind of searcher builder strategies. So I think there's two big trends that we are seeing right now. Like on the one hand, like we see there's increasing user demand for higher efficiency in the global block space auction. And what this means, basically users demand like lower fees, they demand discovery of the MEV and they demand privacy from front running, right? And so if the block space auction doesn't provide these things in a decentralized way, then the users will increasingly go to centralized entities that can provide them that. Um, and this, like, if, if kind of a market is contingent on, on trust in centralized actors, then that's very problematic because it basically rewards the biggest and most. Like the biggest and oldest and kind of most entrenched parties. So flashbots itself, for example, can, or like a, a gnosis, for example, you know, they can provide, uh, like the service because. They are very, very old and very trusted kind of institutions in crypto. But it's impossible for like a new party to come in and say, you know, I want to receive order flow from users because they are less trusted. And it's very hard for them to bootstrap this amount of trust. Um, and in terms of the, the like searchers and builders, I think um, the system needs to find a way to break basically um, the, the incentive to kind of uh, have exclusive order flow. Um, but also benefit from latency advantages so it's all about kind of uh, like arbitraging away what 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 leads to the current dominant paradigm in order to make block building uh, more distributed so i think if i had to guess then this is this is for me kind of the the main benefit basically it increases user efficiency and user guarantees in a way that also flattens the meV supply chain and keeps it more robust Uh, And this is, yeah, this to me leads to much better outcomes for users, but also like in a way that preserves Ethereum's long-term decentralization. Of course, there are many risks involved with that. I think um, getting to a point where it's genuinely decentralized uh, is very difficult. Um, So right now, uh, Flashbots, for example, is still uh, an important kind of centralized actor in the supply chain of MEV you know that many things like many things rely on uh same goes for relays for example we talked about that in our episode with Matt Cutler um in terms of kind of the efficiency side of the market I think we're very optimistic that we can you know by having like an open searcher market we can provide a better uh execution for users than you can have in pretty much any other system um on the on the searcher side, it's definitely harder, right? So if you think about what makes someone an effective searcher builder, for example, in today's meta game, then you have to like think about stuff like you know far like low latency access to the large exchanges, you know large balance sheets, like um, very strong pricing models, etc. And then how do you arbitrage that? Like how how do you write a protocol that basically makes it so that a small searcher can do part of what currently like a big trading firm does. And that like small searchers can work together. Um, that basically the like cross, for example, the sex tax arbitrage market becomes accessible to to smaller players. And that you don't have to be a block builder in order to be effective at sex tax arbitrage. Because I think if there's like this economic like link between block building and sex tax arbitrage, that's obviously a big problem because then over time, whatever party is the best at sex sex arbitrage will dominate block building and so um i think these are the important questions to ask um and they speak to like a lot of questions that need to be solved along the way mainly like latency is a big one i think uh finding a way to create um you know decentralized privacy is another big one um but also giving orders uh like arbitraging like yeah these benefits that that kind of the the big centralized trading firms have i think um i would say these are definitely the challenges that uh, we're going to face over the next year
0: so maybe as a way to just bookend you know this conversation sort of the entire season let's say it's two to three years in the future you know you and i are getting together and saying hey it's been a little while since we did that mev season a little while ago maybe we should do a rehash of that what are we going to be talking about? Is it relatively the same subjects? Are we going to be talking about privacy and latency two to three years into the future? Is there something new? What do you think the kind of future, any trends you're particularly paying attention to, something that's under-discussed now? What are we going to talk about in that season two years from
1: now? Oh, interesting. So we, I, I, maybe we assume that uh, you know Swap already exists and mm. it, it has like a vibrant ecosystem kind of, of mechanisms built on top of it that like lead to MEV discovery and like different ways to execute user transactions. And it has a lot of chains connected to it as well. I think, I hope by this point, we'll be talking about how to scale the system really far, like in terms of connecting more and more domains to it, but also finding more and more uh, network effect between different order types in order to Mm. just drive more and more value to the user, basically at a lower and lower cost. I think that would be my dream. I think it would also be a big question, how the system should be governed. Um, so my personal, yeah, mental model for this is Visa, as I think I've said, uh, in the past, in the season, um, basically an organization that, that is like, that, that like creates, uh, you know, cooperation from like actors that otherwise only engage in, in, competition and, and kind of, um, creates a positive externality from that um and getting the governance rights of that system right will be very important as well as kind of decentralizing the stewardship um because whenever you build i think the mev supply chain is naturally is incredibly centralizing across chains because of the network effects involved and because of the skills that you need to win on one chain's mev supply chain are almost identical uh, to whatever skills you need to, to like win on another chains, maybe supply chain. Right. And in fact, it, being in like two supply chains makes you better in both of them. Right. So that's kind of the pernicious effect of like scale economies as well as cross domain order flow and so on. And, um, and that's why I think at that point we will be looking at this, like behemoth basically, like there will be no more talking about, like, this is like, this one cosmos chains mev supply chain this is like ethereum's mev supply chain and this is like arbitrum's mev supply chain i think we'll be thinking about them as one mev supply chain and we'll be thinking about how can we harden that as much as possible how can we make it better and better for users how can we govern it and how can we ensure that kind of its stewardship is you know as decentralized and robust to um you know for example the uh the utility function of any individual regulator as possible. I think it'll be very much like talking about Ethereum at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically an open source project that a lot of other uh, applications rely on and a lot of other blockchains. Yeah, that would be that would be my guess.
0: I've uh, sort of a boring answer as well and then uh, maybe one that's a little bit more fun, which is I think the the one that's the boring answer, but I do think would be a part of the conversation two years from now would be regulation. I think, especially as it gets larger and larger and more traditional firms get involved and, you know, sort of, it leaks out how much money is being extracted and the <laughs> the absolute value of MEV, you're going to get regulators involved there. And that's going to be more part of the conversation of, you know, how do, uh, you know, what does best execution look like in a TradFi sort of world versus what we deliver in crypto. And I think that's going to be, I think Flashbots is already keyed into this with the emphasis on execution for the the user, but I think that's going to be a bigger part of the conversation. The other part of the conversation, which is, again, this is so, it's so difficult to tease out MEV versus protocol design philosophy, but I don't know if you caught Vitalik's paper that he dropped over the weekend and I'm blanking on the the title here, but I can get it. But it's very much what Barnaby was discussing, which is where is the, the pomerium, right? The, the line of uh, Ethereum versus, you know, other things that are built around and outside Ethereum. And I think there will be. Event- I do think eventually people will start to look at like DApps and rollups built on Ethereum through sort of a political angle. And because um, that that article made me think about what if you know we're moving execution and users up to a big layer two. What if there was a catastrophic you know day one bug in Arbitrum or something like that, and all of that TVL just gets wiped out? That would be almost an existential moment for Ethereum because. You know, to Vitalik's point, people would demand, people would demand very loudly for there to be a fork of Ethereum's uh, code, similarly to how there was in the DAO. And I think a lot of some of what we'll discuss in MEV is maybe like a softer, you know, one catastrophe move in forward of that is something like uh, Uniswap. Uh, this was sort of Dan Elster's point about UniChain being inevitable, where maybe some of the larger apps with PMF that are throwing off a lot of MEV will politically sort of try to, you know. Uh, push that clout right into uh, you know favorable sort of regulatory decisions from from an Ethereum standpoint, and I think that would be part of our discussion two years from now as well. So
1: we'll see if if that ends up playing. That out, makes but... total sense. I think and regulation. I think I like the like double term of the meaning. I think regulation yeah. from uh, from other blockchains, but also regulation from regulators that exist outside of blockchains. I think both will be in a, a very important topic. Um, the, the first is already a very important topic today. The second, we haven't yeah. seen much regulatory um, touch points, basically, with the, for, for the MEV supply chain. I think, fortunately, because it gives us more time to preempt the need for regulation, frankly, um, by building systems that, you know, are better even than what can be built in Treadfy. Hmm. I saw in one curveball, one thing that I, I hope we will be talking about in three years, which is we've been talking about MEV beyond crypto in the sense that you and I, we touched on this, like the philo- philosophical side of MEV, right? Mm-hmm. That MEV really exists everywhere. It's like in any system where there's, uh, a, like a privileged party, um, that has, you know, access to information sooner that, that can act on information sooner or any, uh, any like, um, situation where there's, you know, money lo- value lost to this coordination between, you know, parties, I think those all qualify you know, SMEV, according to, you know, the 3EV model, um, that, uh, Shin-Huan Sun put out and, um, you know, MEV is really everywhere. And I think it would be amazing if, if this is not, if MEV doesn't stay a crypto phenomenon, basically, like, I want MEV to become, you know, a global field of research that basically completely changes mechanism design and, um, and like the way that we design oil systems to make them more accessible and more fair and more egalitarian and just like work better for users than they do today.
0: I think that's a beautiful sentiment and a, a very, a great place to close uh, this episode and the season. Hasu, this has been a, a super fun one doing this with you. Uh, I was, you know, saying to you offline, but I, this is going to bum me out. I've really, you know, all the all the seasons have been fun of this show, but I will be, pretty sad to leave mev behind this has been a uh, really fun one doing this with with you as well so yeah this has been great
1: can only resonate uh resonate that um it's been uh, a lot of fun i already feel uh, you know the withdrawal kick in <laughs>